The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to the throne of grace and we thank you for our mediator, our great high priest who is standing there at the right hand, at your right hand, interceding for us mediating on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for all that you've done for us. Your life, your death, your perfect life. And thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself, for calling us to this Christian life. What a blessing it is to be a Christian, to know that your sins have been forgiven and that you stand before God on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we sin that we continue to sin even as Christians, but we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for this truth. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom of the Christian, that once you are saved, you are always saved, that once you are born again, you are always born again, that once you are a child of God, you are always a child of God. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to end the Lord's day by worshiping you, by coming back to give praise and thanks to your holy name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are continuing our study on Reformation theology, Reformation theology. And tonight we are going to look at Solus Christus, Christ alone, Christ alone. And I'm going to begin by saying something that sounds provocative and even controversial. We are saved in the final analysis by works. You are saved by works. Now here's the catch. Don't get this wrong. They aren't your works. You had to wait for that one. They're entirely the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a classic verse that, that you can, there's lots of verses that we could point to and I have a lot written down, but let me just have you turn to one. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. This is one of those great statements of the gospel. One of the great statements of Solus Christus. For our sake, he, that's referring to God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that phrase, knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He was a true man, was he not? Born under the law. And he lived a perfect life. You see, he didn't just come down for Good Friday to die on the cross for your sins. He didn't just die for you. He also lived for you. Do you remember when he showed up at the Jordan River and John the Baptist was baptizing all those people? Do you remember what John was baptizing them for? It was a baptism of what? Repentance. You only repent from what? Sin. And Jesus shows up and says, okay, now you baptize me. And John's, no, I, I'm not going to baptize you. This is a baptism 
for sin, for repentance. And Jesus says, no, you put me down in that water. Why? John asked him, do you remember? And do you remember what Jesus said? This is to fulfill all, what's the word? Righteousness. Same word that Paul uses here. Dikeosuni. Same word. Righteousness. What Jesus is saying is, is I need to be identified with all these sinners. So you're going to put me down in that water. And I'm going to come out and live as their representative, doing these works of the law. And then when he comes up from the water, where does he go? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And yet, without sin, without sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look back at 2 Corinthians 5.21. The reformers said this, that in the gospel, a great exchange takes place. That when you trust Christ in faith and you are united to him, there's an exchange. All of your sin is counted to him. All of it. Remember the scapegoat? The priest would put his hands on the goat and send it off. Or the other goat, he would sacrifice it. But he'd put his hand on it. All of your sin credited to Christ. But more than that, all of his righteousness is credited to you in the gospel. All of it. So you stand before God on Christ's merit. Did Christ obey the law? Yes, he did. He was blameless. He was perfect. Pilate said, I find no fault with this man. And in the gospel, all of that righteousness is credit to you, all of it. It's a remarkable truth. And that's the truth of solus Christus. Now tonight, I want to give you three lists. Okay, I've been doing lists every night because that, it's, it's easier for you to follow along when I give you lists and I don't just go on paragraph after paragraph. So three lists. And the first list, I want to introduce you to a new reformer tonight. We've talked about the forerunners of the Reformation. We've talked about Martin Luther. We've talked about uh, Zwingli. And tonight, I want to introduce you to a reformer named John Calvin. John Calvin. His dates are 1509 to 1564. And I'm going to give you four truths about Calvin. Here's the first one. He was a prodigious Protestant, a prodigious Protestant. You couldn't have been more Catholic than Calvin. Uh, he was born and raised in a town about 60 miles northeast of Paris called Noyon. His father was named Gerald. His mother was named Jean. Gerald was 50 years old when he was born. And his mother, he hardly knew her. Uh, she died when he was five or six years old. But his father was an accountant for the church. He was basically a church administrator. So there was a big cathedral in this town, and, and Calvin's father worked at the cathedral. And so Calvin's whole life was connected to the Roman church and the whole the whole sacramental system, all of it was what he lived and breathed. In fact, when he was 11 years old, his father basically helped secure a chaplaincy for him, the for him at the church. I mean, I find that, you know, I don't know what the responsibilities of a chaplain were, but, but it's kind of humorous to think about an 11, 11-year-old 11 boy being a chaplain at, at the church. 
But that's what he did. He was, he was a, a chaplain at the church, and then when he was 14 years old, his father sent him to the University of Paris to study theology in hopes that he would become a priest. So he goes to Paris, and like many of the reformers, you know, God works these events and circumstances in your pre-conversion life to shape you to be the person that he wants you to be ultimately for the kingdom. So he goes to the university and he starts studying Catholic theology and they make him learn Latin. They drill it down into him, which would be something that he would use for the rest of his life. So he studies Latin, he, he does very well at the University of Paris, but then when he graduates, his father has a change of opinion. He says, I don't want you to study theology to be a priest. I actually want you to make some money for our family. There's not much money in the ministry. I don't know if you, at least if the right types, the right types of ministries, okay? But uh, he said, I want you to go make some money. I want you to be a lawyer. So he sent him to law school in the town of Orleans. Uh, he he went to uh, a law school called Burgess. This, the dates would be 1528 uh, to 1531 that he, that he studied law. So you can imagine he's entering law school at 19 years old. And while he was there, he met an evangelical, a man by the name of Wolmer or Volmer. And this man, just in the middle of law school, decides to teach Calvin Greek as if studying law isn't enough. They study Greek on the side. Any of you studying Greek on the side? I've got some guys here study, beginning to study Greek. I mean, one of them I think said, it's all Greek to me, you know. Uh, that's hard. But Calvin studied Greek in law school and mastered it. And he studied with this evangelical, but he remained unconverted. He was, a, he was a Catholic's Catholic. And again, the Reformation is going on at this point. He's not immune to Luther and all these ideas out there. He just resists them. He doesn't want to be a Protestant. Uh, becoming a Protestant for John Calvin would be like becoming a Texas Longhorn when you're an Aggie. It would be like becoming a Wolfpack fan when you're a Tar Hill or uh, a Tar Hill if you're a wolf pack, right? You don't do that. A major worldview shift has to happen in order for Calvin to become a Protestant. But that's exactly what happened as he began to read the Greek New Testament. What have we talked about again and again and again and again? Where is the power in the ministry? It's in the Word of God. And as Calvin began to read his New Testament, 24 years old, he said, quote, The Lord shone upon me with the brightness of his Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to overcome your resistance. And he did. In his preface to his commentary on the Psalms, Calvin didn't talk much about himself, so scholars have to just try to dig up as much as they can through his, his corpus of writing to find any biographical information about him. But this is something that he slipped in in his preface to the Psalms. He said, God, by the secret leading of his providence, turn my course another way. First, when I was too firmly addicted to the superstitions of the papacy to be drawn easily out of such a deep mire, he says, by a sudden conversion, God subdued and made teachable my mind. Isn't that amazing? That God made his mind teachable. He says, having therefore received a taste and knowledge of true 
piety, I burned with such a desire to carry my study further that although I did not drop other subjects, so again, he's studying law, I had no zeal for them. In less than a year, listen, this, this is amazing. He says, all who were looking for a pure doctrine begin to come to learn from me, although I was a novice and a beginner. So he's radically converted, and almost immediately, people begin to seek him out as a teacher. So that's the first point. He's a prodigious Protestant. Second, here's the other thing. This is a major theme in his life, is he was a persecuted pilgrim. He was a persecuted pilgrim. Calvin would spend almost the entirety of the rest of his life on the run and away from his homeland of France. In 1534, so he's converted about, you know, 1533, again, 24 years old. So 1534, there was an occurrence in France called the placard event. Now, placard in French just means poster. It was the poster event. And basically, what these Protestants did on October 17, 1534, is they nailed up posters all over France, in, in Paris, in, in Marseille, all these major cities, they put up these posters. And the posters basically proclaimed that the mass was an idolatrous blasphemy of God. Somebody had the nerve to nail one of these posters to King Francis's door going into his bedroom. And you can just imagine some Protestant, you know, down in the stables or something, you know, sneaks up there and, <laughs> you know, nails this poster to King Francis's door going into his bedchamber. And this unleashes the wrath of Francis and the government. Over 200 Protestant leaders were arrested. 24 were burned at the stake. I kid you not. Think about that. Over, over these posters, 24 Protestant Frenchmen, they would later be called Huguenots, if you've ever heard that word in one of your history classes, were burned at the stake. One of them was Calvin's landlord. And they went into Calvin's room and searched his room, and they found Protestant papers. And so Calvin went on the run. He left France, and he hightailed it into Switzerland, to the town of Basel. Uh, he arrived there, 1535, and that theme of being a persecuted pilgrim is something that I think Calvin lived down to the core of his being and, 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 and something that Calvin saw is something that's very primary in the Christian life in this world. That this world is not our home, ultimately. That we are pilgrims on this journey. Listen to what Calvin says. This is a note he makes on Matthew eight nineteen. He says, Christ's road is a thorny one for his disciples. It leads through endless pains to a cross. So we should learn that in his person, we are all being told not to make wild and irresponsible claims to be Christ's disciples without taking any thought for the cross and the hardships. This is the basic training which admits us to his school denying ourselves and lifting up our cross. So that was, Calvin understood that you will be persecuted, that Christ's call in this world as his disciples is to take up our cross and follow him. So first, he was a prodigious Protestant. Second, he was a persecuted pilgrim. Third, he was a providential pastor. A providential pastor. So he goes into Switzerland, to the town of Basel, and one of the things he does, I mean, this, he was a brilliant person. He immediately starts writing about the Christian life so he can help all the people that are coming to him to ask questions. 
So he starts, he says, okay, I'm going to write a little treatise that basically is an introduction to someone on the Christian life. Okay, you have these questions. Let me just give you this, this thing I've written. Uh, he called it the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, you've probably heard of that. It's one of the most influential books outside of the Bible that's ever been written. And what Calvin would do is he expanded it six times over the course of his life till it became a, basically a whole systematic theology. But it started as a basic introduction. So immediately, he's, he's writing, he's studying, and he's, he's really, God's using him to, to help other Protestants know and understand the Christian faith. And this is all happening when he's 24, 25, 26 years old. Now, I said earlier that he was a providential pastor. Here's what I mean by that, is that he didn't really set out to be a pastor. In the summer of 1536, he decides to go to Strasbourg, and there was a, a, a reformer there named Martin Bootser, and, and Bootser asked him to come and study with him and, and basically continue working really in an academic way to advance the Protestant Reformation. And he had an overnight stop on the way to Strasbourg in the town of Geneva. You ever go on a, on a trip, you know, maybe it's to, to Texas, and it's like, okay, we got you know, to make a stop in Birmingham or whatever. It's just an overnight. We're just going to stay there one night. That's, that's Geneva for Calvin, just one night. And he gets there, and there, here, here's what's gone on in, in Geneva. Basically, two months earlier, the, the whole city, this whole Swiss canton, this whole Swiss city-state decided to become a Protestant city-state. And the, the pastor, the main leader, was a man by the name of Pharrell. And Pharrell had heard about Calvin. He had heard about this little booklet he'd written, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And so he heard that Calvin was staying overnight. And so he goes maybe to the inn where Calvin is at and says, you're not going to Strasbourg. You're staying here in Geneva. And Calvin says, no, I'm going to Strasbourg. Uh, this guy named Martin Bootser has asked me to come help him. You've probably heard of him. And Farrell says, no, I need you here. We just became a Protestant city. I need you to help preach and write. We can do something special here in Geneva. Calvin says, absolutely not. I'm, go I'm, I'm going to Strasbourg. And Farrell then invoked the judgment of God. He says, if you go to Strasbourg, you will incur the wrath of God Almighty because God wants you here. <laughs> so that's one way to get someone's attention, isn't it? And so that's what Calvin did. He, he said, okay, well, reluctantly, I, I'm, this is not what I was planning on doing. He stays in Geneva. And he and Pharrell work to bring reform. And it's very difficult at first, very difficult, because uh, the town kept a lot of the power and authority that the church should have had for itself. For example, the authority of church discipline. If somebody commits a grievous sin and shows that they are an unbeliever by their life, then the church brings discipline on that action. Well, the town kept that authority of church discipline for themselves. So, Pharrell and Calvin said, well, we can't serve the Lord's Supper then if we can't discipline people. And so they, uh, they kind of staged a little coup. They decided to essentially excommunicate the whole town. They said, we're not going to serve anybody the Lord's Supper. If, if we can't exercise church discipline, everybody's disciplined and nobody's getting the supper. That's how serious they were. Are we that serious about the Lord's Supper? Calvin and Farrell said, if, if you want to know what a true church is, that there, there's three marks. It's the right preaching of the Word of God. It's the, it's the right observance of the sacraments or ordinances. And third, the church practices church discipline. He says that those are the three marks 
of a true church. And they said, if we can't practice church discipline, no communion. Well, that went over really well uh, there in Geneva. And April 23rd, 1538, they dismissed Calvin and Farrell. They just said, leave the city. You're done. Leave. Go. Uh, so Calvin, remember, he got there two years earlier. He's now gotten the boot. So uh, basically, Martin Bootser then says, hey, now I really want you to come to Strasbourg. So he finally gets to go to Strasbourg, and it's a good thing, because there he found a wife. Uh, he married a, a widow named Idolette. She was um, uh, a Protestant. She had been converted from Roman Catholicism as well. And unfortunately, their marriage was short-lived. She only lived nine years uh, after they married, leaving Calvin heartbroken. Um, he never would remarry. Uh, it was uh, essentially really his closest relationship. They had one son, and unfortunately that son died in infancy, something that the Roman Catholics would always point at. Now you say that you're right with God and that you have the right doctrine, but yet your wife dies, your child dies, how can you claim to be right with God when you've incurred such loss? But that's how it is sometimes, right, in the providence of God, in a fallen world. We're not guaranteed life and freedom and all these things. So Calvin dealt with that, and, and, and he, he had such a deep trust in the providence and sovereignty of God. He just said, I give all these heartaches to him in his kind hand. I know that he knows what he's doing. Um, he returned to Geneva. They, they, they needed Calvin and Farrell back because there were a number of reasons that we could dig into. But they needed him back, so they asked him to come back. And here's the funny thing, I think, a really amazing thing is that when Calvin left Geneva, he was preaching sequentially. I don't know which, uh, which book he was in at the time. But when he came back, the Sunday that he came back and got into the pulpit, he resumed preaching on the very next verse that he had left on three years earlier. I mean, how's that for a commitment to Bible exposition? You know, there's no intro sermon. It, there's no, you know, cute little series you know, turn back to Isaiah chapter 20. We're, we're, we're picking up right where we left off. Wow, what, what a commitment to preaching the Word of God. So what would happen, um, by the way, he, he would come back to Geneva and he would never leave. He died there preaching. He died on April 25th, 1564, but Geneva became a safe haven for Protestants around the world. Have you ever heard of John Knox, the Scottish reformer? He fled Scotland and he ended up in Geneva. All these people, all these uh, British Protestants crossed the channel, made their way to Geneva, and they studied at the feet of Calvin. Their, the, the first really English Bible that was translated with mass distribution was called the Geneva Bible. And the way that the Geneva Bible originated is all these Englishmen went to, went to Geneva and they sat on the front row and they took notes on Calvin's sermons and then they worked to translate from the Greek and the Hebrew. They translated, translated it into English and then they took Calvin's notes from his sermons and they put them in the margins. It was the first study Bible. When the pilgrims came to this country, do you know what they brought with them? The Geneva Bible. America is here because of what God did under Calvin in Geneva. John Winthrop John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, all, Cotton Mather, all the, the founders of this country, when I, when I say founders, I'm saying the, the colonists, they all carried a Geneva Bible. 
absolutely remarkable what God did through his pastor. Okay, so first, he was a prodigious Protestant. Second, he was a persecuted pilgrim. Third, he was a providential pastor. And fourth, he was a powerful preacher of the Word of God. You know, Calvin, he, what Calvin would do, I mean, he wasn't just, he wasn't one of those guys that would stand up and shout, but what he would do is he would take you so deep into the Word of God that you would rise up and find yourself in heaven. You would, you would, you would all of a sudden just, the glories of Christ would appear before you and you would see God in His holiness and the depth on which he would take you was the depth that would take the Protestant faith to the Netherlands, to Scotland, to England, to America. And it happened because Calvin said, look, here's what we're going to do. We are going to dive deep into the Word of God. And throughout this series, we've said this over and over again, the blueprint for ministry is so, so simple. You lift up his word. You explain it, and you exhort people to obey it. That's it. No gimmicks, no bells and whistles. Calvin did this. Listen to this. He preached through Genesis, Deuteronomy, Job, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all of the major and minor prophets, all four Gospels, Acts, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Thessalonians, all three pastorals, and the letter to the Hebrews. And these weren't just flyover book studies. You know, where some guys will do Romans and 10 sermons or something, you know. No, no, not Calvin. Listen to this. 174 sermons on Ezekiel. 159 sermons on Job. 200 sermons on Deuteronomy. He preached every single verse. That was Calvin. And man, that's the type of preaching that's needed today, isn't it? No frills to lift up the Word of God, to teach it, explain it, expound it, and exhort it. Well, let me, let me just say a couple, just, these are a couple of my thoughts about Calvin. Um, Spurgeon said, you know, Spurgeon went over to Geneva, and they still had Calvin's Genevan gown that he would wear when he preached. And when Spurgeon went to preach in Geneva, they said, we want you to wear it. And Spurgeon said, it makes me tremble to wear this. That's the type of ministry that Calvin had. I mean, it's just, you think, it, you know, if, if Calvin were a mountain, he would be Everest. He, he's in the Himalayas. He, he's, his ministry stands um, so high. And, and the, reason, the reason for this, uh, I was reading this historian, Roland Bainton, a famous biographer of Martin Luther, and Bainton said this, he said, Luther's emphasis was on justification by faith only. He says, Calvin's emphasis was on the glory and sovereignty of God. Calvin's emphasis was on the glory and sovereignty of God. And then he makes this note about that. He said, quote, this is a quote. I underlined this, circled this, highlighted it, made a PDF he said, Calvin, Calvinism, therefore, bred a race of heroes. A race of heroes. A hero is someone 
that becomes gripped with something outside of themselves that causes them to act in an extraordinary manner. That's what a hero is. And what Calvin did is he lifted up God where people became transfixed by the character and the glory of God. And that became the primary motivation of their entire life. And if you are motivated by the glory of God, then nothing on this earth can stop you. Nothing. Because you are motivated by the highest and most glorious, majestic reality that has ever existed. One Catholic soldier said this after Calvin's death, quote, I would rather face a whole army than one Calvinist convinced he was doing the will of God, end quote. You become gripped by these things, by the glory of God. And that's the guys that Calvin influenced, people like John Owen and John Bunyan, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, and, and William Perkins and, and Abraham Kuyper and the people that go down through the centuries were all gripped by this reality of the glory of God. And that's our heritage here in America. America, John Winthrop said, America's going to be, do you remember what he said? A city on a hill. It's going to be a beacon for the glory of God. That was the vision in which they set out. Okay, so that's the first list. So I introduced you to Calvin. Now, let me give you the second list, all right? You could title this second list, The Attack on Solus Christus. The Attack on Solus Christus. And I introduced Calvin to you because Calvin's going to help us think through this and help us articulate the doctrine of Solus Christus. Now, what had happened in, the, in, in Rome, Roman theology is they had compromised the doctrine and the belief of Solus Christus in numerable ways. Let me just give you four. First, first, they committed the Galatian heresy. Do you remember what the Galatian heresy is? Is that the Galatians added what to faith? Works. Works of the law. They said, yes, you're justified by Christ, but you also need works. And that's exactly what Rome did in their theology. In the Council of Trent, in the Articles on Justification, I'm just going to quote you directly what, what Rome says. Quote, If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, now listen to this, to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost. In other words, to the exclusion of good works. If you say that you're justified alone by, by the imputation of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, to the exclusion of good works, listen, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Essentially what they were saying in that is that Christ's work is not enough to justify you before God. It's not enough to simply believe him that you are also justified by good works, and you must do good works in order to be justified. The question is, and this is what the Reformers always raised, how many good works? What's the, you know, how many is enough? What gets us in? Oh, well, here's what they, this is, this is in the Catholic Catechism. You don't know. You never know. In fact, if you claim to know, you're, you're definitely not in. I'm, I'm dead serious. If you claim to have assurance of salvation, oh, well, that's anathema. Let you be damned. That's what they said. That's Roman doctrine. It's the Galatian heresy. Let me give you a couple Calvin quotes. He says, by this diabolical imagination, the force of faith was entirely extinguished, the benefit of Christ taken away, and the salvation of the people overturned. For as Paul testifies, 
That alone is Christian faith in which trust is stirred in our hearts and in which we dare to stand in the presence of God. Did you notice how he called this compromise by Rome diabolical? It's the doctrine of demons, a compromise of Christ's work. Here's another quote. He says, there is no greater point of contention among us and in which our enemies more firmly speak against us than justification, whether we obtain it by faith or works. They in no way allow this honor to be attributed to Christ so that he may be called our righteousness unless the merits of our works also count as part of it. Therefore, we rebuke these errors because people are told to regard their own works more than Christ in order to make God favorably disposed to them, to merit his grace, to obtain the inheritance of eternal life, and finally to be righteous before God, end quote. Uh, the second way that Rome had compromised Solus Christus is in, is in their understanding of the Mass, the Mass, the Eucharist, as they call it. And here's what Rome believes. Rome believes that the priest comes before the church. When you go to a Roman Catholic church, the altar is already always in the middle because the Eucharist is the center of their worship, not the preached word of God. Protestants switched it. They said, you know, one, we don't have an altar. We have a, a pulpit where the word is proclaimed, and the pulpit should be in the middle because that is the center of our worship. In the Roman Catholic church, the altar's in the middle, and the priest comes, and the bread and the wine are put on the table, and the priest prays a prayer of consecration. And in that prayer, the bread and the wine superstitiously and magically change into the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say that the priest essentially makes this offering, this sacrifice for the people. That it's a re-sacrifice, get this, of Christ let me just give you Rome from their own words, okay? This is, this is a quote from the Catholic Catechism. Quote, At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. The signs of bread and wine become in a way surpassing understanding the body and blood of Christ. So what people did in, in the 16th century is after the priest would consecrate the bread, sometimes they would just go take the loaf and put it in a box and worship it. Because it's Christ and their theology. Some would take a little piece and sneak it out of the chapel, you know, put it on a, a, a necklace as an amulet. I've got the, I've got the, I've got the body of Christ protecting me. Some would take the bread, take it into battle. Kind of like how the, the Israelites, you know, took the ark, you know, against the Philistines. They take the bread and say, you know, I've got, I've got God on my side, literally. I've got Christ right here with me. That's what they did with the bread and, and the wine. And often the priests, they wouldn't even serve the wine to the congregation because it, it, they didn't think that the congregation should receive the wine, so the priests would go drink it all in the back. Maybe get a little tipsy. Um, so they believe that in the Eucharist, like I said, that Christ is being re-sacrificed. Again, let me give you this quote from the Catechism. Quote, because it is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the Eucharist is also a sacrifice. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, end quote. Let me read you a verse from Hebrews. This is Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice 
for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ died once, and he said, it is finished. It's done. And he ascends into heaven. I mean, I mean you read, I mean, read Ephesians 4. He ascends into heaven. He gives gifts to men because his work is done. It's finished. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more atonements. Christ's work is complete. Here's what Calvin said. He said, The Lord's Supper has not only been corrupted by unnecessary additions, but has itself been turned into something entirely different. It's nothing like what we observe. If you go to a Catholic church when the, when the Eucharist happens, it's not the Lord's Supper. And therefore, if you go, if you're ever at a Catholic wedding, never take communion. It's, no, it's not communion. It, it's a completely, really, man-contrived way to worship that is completely opposed to the Word of God. Calvin, let me just give you, I mean, you just, Calvin lived this. He grew up in this, and, and he says this. He says, certainly this is a serious evil, but the superstition is far worse still because they apply this work as meritorious to obtain grace for the living and the dead, and he says this, and so the efficacy of Christ's death was turned into an empty theatrical performance. That's what's going on in, in, in Roman churches everywhere, that the death of Christ is really being trampled upon. They're saying Christ's death is not enough. You need, the, you need the mass. You need the Eucharist to receive a, a new sacrifice of Christ. No, I don't. No, I don't. I stand on the blood and righteousness of Christ that's already been shed for me. I don't need it. And nor does anyone who is united to Christ in faith. Fourth, or sorry, third. So first was the Galatian heresy. Second, the mass Third, prayers to the saints. Prayers to the saints. If any of y'all, I know some of y'all are Roman, Roman Catholic, grew up Roman Catholic, you know, maybe, maybe some of y'all are still Catholic, but do you remember praying to saints? Remember praying to certain saints? Here, here's the big idea here. Let me give you the big idea. The big idea is that God is so lofty, that Christ is so holy, so magnificent, that you can't approach him. You know, I, I, it, it's kind of like the idea, I, I can't go into the throne room to talk to the king because I'm so lowly and he's so great, uh, despite uh, the fact that we have access, right, to, to the Father in Christ. But it's this idea that God is so lofty, we don't have access to him, so we need a saint to do, really do, an, do a, kind of be a middleman that we go to the saint, and then the saint goes to God for us. So you can pick a saint. You could, you know, Peter or Andrew or James or uh, Jerome or Athanasius, Michael. Uh, the favorite was Mary, because Mary is who? Jesus' mom. He, you know, he's got to listen to her, right? But the way that they worked it out is that there was a patron saint for everything, you know, if you were a miner, you had a saint. If you were a fisherman, you had a saint. There was a saint for shipwrecks. There was a, a, a saint for, you know, fruit baskets. Whatever, whatever you're dealing with, there's a saint for you. And, and, and if you're caught in a storm, there's a specific saint. You remember who that saint is? We already talked about her. Luther prayed to her, remember? Saint Anne. If you're caught in a storm, go to Saint Anne. She's there for you. So that was the idea, that you go to these saints. And again, in so doing, 
they completely tossed out the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Calvin says this. He says, therefore, having passed over Christ. I mean, how sad is this? Having passed over Christ. Having passed over Christ. Everyone is satisfied with the patronage of the saints. Superstition swells more and more so that they indiscriminately invoke the saints. Listen, no differently than God. Moreover, each one, each saint is assigned its own sphere so that one brings forth rain, another good weather, another delivers from fever, and another from shipwreck. Let this one act, he says, let this one act of wickedness suffice for all. Listen to this. The whole world by summoning advocates from here and there, neglects Christ, who alone was set forth by God. He said, I, you know, I look at all this world, you know, and this is everywhere. People praying to saints. He's saying everywhere where the Christian religion is supposedly practiced, he's saying Christ is neglected and forgotten. Christ is not worshiped. Christ is not seen as the mediator. And so part of what they did is they taught people, so simple, so simple, to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for having bid farewell to to the intercession of the saints, we have called people back to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's it right there. I mean, that's Pauline, right? Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You proclaim Christ. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ and Him crucified. He says, having bid farewell to the intercession of the saints, we have called people back to Christ so that they may invoke the Father in His name and learn to rely on Him as mediator. End quote. They also had to teach people to pray in their native tongue. Those people would just pray in Latin or, you know, all sorts of things, chants that they didn't know. Uh, so they would teach people to pray prayers from the heart, not just to recite the Lord's Prayer, though we should pray through the Lord's Prayer as a rubric, but you don't just recite it from, you know, rotely, say, okay, I'm praying. That's not prayer. Prayer is coming to God in Christ from the heart, pleading with him, and speaking to him. That's prayer. So, fourth, fourth way that Solus Christus was compromised is on the issue of purgatory in the treasury of merit. And we've talked about this. I'm not going to, to rehash this. But essentially, in this whole thing of faith and works, they taught that nobody really, unless you were a super saint, nobody really had enough merit to get straight into heaven. You would have to be, you would have to be a, a super holy person, probably go live in a cave, never get married, renounce your possessions, you know, that sort of thing, if you wanted to get into heaven. And they said what you would do is you would need to go to purgatory. And Lord willing, uh, you could receive some merit while you were in purgatory from one of the super saints. And that that the Pope was given a thing called the treasury of merit that contained the merit of all, the extra merit of all the super saints. And he could dispense that merit to you. And You could even buy this merit through what was called an indulgence. That would put more money into the the Roman system. And all of this was a direct assault on the finished work of Christ. That once you trust him in faith, you are forgiven of your sins. 
they're gone. They're washed away, and you stand on the righteousness of Christ. This is Romans 4, 5, into the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Calvin says, quote, we, however, assert that people's sins are freely forgiven, and we acknowledge no other satisfaction than what Christ performed when he made atonement for our sins by the sacrifice of his death. Therefore, we declare that forgiveness comes from the benefit of Christ alone so that we are reconciled to God, end quote. All right, I had a third list, and we don't have much time for the third list, okay? Let me just give you the, the third list in, in a very brief synopsis. Look at Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For works of the law, no one will be justified. We too have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. Um, let me give you just a quote from Calvin's sermons on, on this verse. He did sermons on this verse, okay? Let me, let me just give you a quote, and, and we're, we're going to end with this. Therefore, let us understand that there is none, not one whit of our salvation out of Jesus Christ, but that we have there both the beginning and the end of it. That is to say, every whit of it. And let us abide continually in that lowliness, knowing that we bring nothing with us but damnation, and that all that ever pertaineth to our salvation must be received of God's only free mercy. So as we may say that it is by faith and we be saved, that is to say because God the Father has appointed his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for us to rest upon, that he might both begin and finish our salvation in such wise as the whole must be fathered upon him, and we learn to renounce ourselves and to give ourselves fully and wholly unto him. And now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God, with acknowledgement of our sins, praying him to make us so to fill them as we may mislike more and more of them, and grow and go forward in the amendment wherein we ought to spend our whole life and learn to magnify his goodness in such wise ways as it hath been showed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, so as we may be wholly ravished with it, and that the same way may be not a glorying of it with our mouth only, but a putting of our whole trust in him, so as we may be settled in it more and more till we be gathered up into the everlasting life where we, where we will where we shall have the reward of our faith, that it may please him to grant this grace, not only to us, but also to all people, end quote. He was ravished with this reality of solus Christus, Christ alone, Christ's work alone, not our work, not your work. By works of the law, works of the law, no man will be justified. Just let me, one to one point Calvin makes, one insightful point. Not even a Christian, not the Jew, not the Gentile, not even the Christian. You couldn't live a perfect life now if you tried.
you need the righteousness of Christ. Heavenly Father, we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are most wise, most holy. Lord, we thank you for how you live for us, how you died for us, how your righteousness is given to us as a gift. Praise be to God. We thank you, Lord, for these glorious truths that we stand on faith alone, apart from works, on Christ alone, in his finished work. We thank you, Lord, that you are mediating for us right now, the right hand of the Father, that you live to make intercession for us. You are our priest, our only priest. We need no other. We look to you. We praise your name in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.